Here we are. Hello, everybody. Hi, Hi Nicole. Hello. Hi, Charlie. Hi. It's the uh, To Hell and Back podcast. And, um, you know, here's the thing. Just a few minutes ago, I was talking to Nicole, and I, I didn't have my silver hat on, right? And then in the middle of it, she was saying to me that when we interact in the podcast, she needs to sometimes get in and say something when I'm talking, and she knows that's going to annoy me. And so what I did automatically at that moment was I put on the silver hat. And then I realized another function of the silver hat is like a heat shield. It's like a deflector. And so I just, I just, I'm figuring this out. So I I just wanted to keep you, keep you updated to the purposes of this. And let me tell you why, why I need that with her. I was teaching a workshop in Maine. Mm. There were about 300 people there. Everyone was at the same level. It was like a gymnasium floor or something. So all these people are in rows in front of me. And I, I'm, I'm in the middle of teaching, and this woman comes up in front of me and stands in front of me. She's my helper. She was the media person from Seattle that was helping with the media from the sidelines. And she comes up and stands right in front of me between me and the audience. And she says, Charlie, do you want a Diet Coke? Oh. And I said, Amanda, who I had just met that day, she was new. And Amanda, I'm in the middle of teaching right now. What are you doing? (laughs) I'm not, no, I don't want to die at Coke right now. I'm in the middle of teaching. You're standing between me and the audience. What are you doing? And I've got really. Are you really, drawing an analogy between me and Amanda with a Diet Coke? No, it's just totally random thought, you know. Ah, ah. <laughs> it like, it's like, oh, you know, you annoy me when you interrupt me. And kind of like Amanda with the Diet Coke, just this there, random. N- no, <laughs> uh, well, you're, you're, you're like this. You're like a psychoanalyst putting these things together, you know. It's ah, like, ah, that was a big leap. That was a really big, big so I so I so I said, Amanda, get away. And then she looked at me and she said, Your fly is down. <laughs> <laughs> she did. Looked right at me. She says, Your fly is down. I said, Oh, I get it. And then I said, Thank you. And then she so she walked back and I had the diet coke there. So I'm standing there in front of the audience, and they're all out there. And I looked down and I noticed, indeed, my fly is down. And I thought, oh, shit, now what? And so then I said, um, by the way, everybody, I just want you to know what a really good teammate does in DBT. They rescue you from embarrassing situations. So Amanda just informed me that my fly is down. And that's why she brought me this Diet Coke. And I was really pissed off. there while you actually like self-corrected and acted as your shield. But that's neither here nor there. I, I didn't know if it was. Diet hand. I didn't know what would, what would be the, what would be the most and least embarrassing move at that moment. So I said to them, and so then I said to the people in the you you people in the front row, like <laughs> you didn't say anything. What kind of teammates are you? And then guess what? I'll just got to tell you one more part of this. This is not germane to today's podcast at all, but it's just it's important in terms of our working relationship because that was Amanda was inter- interfering, but with and then I had to realize. <laughs> <Yes, intentions. laughs> 
So then I then I learned at the break of the workshop that Amanda had been sitting there on the sidelines watching the famous Charlie Swenson give a workshop and thinking, oh, my God, his fly is down. What do I do? So she called the vice president of the company, the training company. His name was Helen Best. And she called Helen Best, who was in New Zealand at another workshop. I'm in Maine. She calls her, wakes her up and says, Helen, I don't know what to do. Charlie's up there teaching and his fly is down. And Helen said, get a Diet Coke and walk up there and stand in front of him. He's going to be pissed off at you, but he's going to be grateful later. And anyway, just to tell you all that. So anyway, I'm telling you this because Nicole and I are still early in this process of learning to work together. And I'm like a big lecturer. I go on and on and on. I mean, I watched last week's podcast. (laughs) And I thought, Charlie, shut up. Like, you know, let's interact. Give her some space. So I'm working on that. We're it's a work in progress, and so anyway, so I've got to make room. And, I mean, and and I know that this is it's very important for me to be considerate and patient, and I'm very happy to do that. And today I'm going to really, really keep my mouth shut more than I did last week, at least in the beginning. So Charlie you, can feel you didn't talk that much. Like, you didn't say no, that. I didn't. I didn't, but you felt like I did. No, so I'm going to let you get some some mileage before <laughs> I interject as mouthpiece for all right the people. Okay, all right. Let me. Okay, so Locked what are we talking in. about? We're talking about narcissism, and this is actually one podcast in several on this topic. We did one last week that was kind of a preliminary set of thoughts and discussion about it. Today is like a little more formal, like getting giving the, you the foundation uh, of understanding ways to think about narcissism and also the diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder. And, and so because this is a very controversial subject. It's been a controversial subject since about 1910, by the way, when Freud wrote it for the first time in one of his papers. On nar- and then he wrote a paper a little after that called On Narcissism. So it's been around, and he borrowed it from somebody who wrote it in 1898. And so that's when it was very first in the psychological literature at all. So, you know, we're all still... All the way back to the 1800s. 1800s. We're really going to do a thorough lecture today, huh? No, we're not. We're jumping. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I did not do Go ahead, go ahead. That's right. It's already so thorough. It's, it's, you better be taking notes. Um, so Freud, Freud brought it up and then it became controversial rather quickly about what exactly it meant. Even then, what we talk about as narcissism now bears only a faint resemblance to what he talked about. But so what it, and then in the sixties and seventies, it became incredibly controversial about what it was and how you treat it between two schools of thought that I mentioned last week, Kernberg and Kohut. And that, that was very interesting. That's when I started to get involved in psychology and psychiatry. And I, I was really interested in that debate. And then it keeps going. And I think one of the controversies now is just how do people use, I mean, once the diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder came along in the beginning of 1980s, <clears throat> it's like ever since then, people have been saying, is this narcissistic? Is this narcissistic? Wait, what is, is narcissistic pathological? So let me say, first of all, and this is a repeat of something from last week that was maybe said a little more clearly. Narcissism is normal. Narcissism, as we understand it, basically means 
How are you doing with your self-esteem? Are you having a good day where you're feeling like you're a strong person? You're confident? You feel secure in yourself? You got up on the right side of the bed and you're, and you're feeling like, okay, I can do this. And you take a chance of doing something like, you, you know, you, you put a stupid hat on if you're in public or something like that, or you tell a dumb story. I mean, where you just decide, you know what? I'm okay. I'm okay. You're okay. We're okay. I'm going to do this. That's healthy narcissism. That's like, okay, that's self-esteem. So I want you to be thinking narcissism is something to do with self-esteem. And then problems with narcissism are sometimes problems with uh, feeling like, no, I got up on the wrong side of the bed. I'm feeling very insecure. I'm feeling very vulnerable. I'm feeling like I'm going to make a lot of mistakes today. And if anybody says anything to me about me, I'm going to really be upset. It's going to really hurt my feelings. I'm going to feel rejected. And I'm walking around with already kind of a wound going on. So it's sort of like I'm just, but, but a lot of the time, narcissism just means, yeah, well, how are you doing with your self-esteem? That's not a disorder. That's not pathology. You want an airline pilot who's flying you 30,000 feet in the air with 400 people in an airplane. You want them to have some narcissism because you want them to feel like, I can damn well do this. I can do this. I'm a powerful pilot. I know how to run this thing. I don't care if there's 400 people that are lives are depending on me. I'm the guy to do it. And you want people in battle to do that, right? And you want your accountant to do that. And you want people at the bank to do that. And you want your best friend to do that if they're doing a hard thing. So it's sort of like healthy narcissism is that sometimes you get a little inflated, but maybe not totally crazy. You're not psychotic, but you're feeling like, all right, I can do this. I can do this. I'm, I'm going to have a tough conversation with my boss about how I've been treated lately, and I've got to get my ego up. I've got to get my self-esteem up so I can have this conversation, and then I have this conversation. And so narcissism is a, a good thing when it's good, and it's a vulnerability. Here's partly why it's controversial. People start thinking, they hear the word narcissism, and they think, oh, that's a bad thing. You don't want to be narcissistic. I mean, that's, that just must mean you're selfish. It's a, that's a misunderstanding. I mean, narcissism is actually this thing that's related to having self-esteem. Think of it like this. Everyone in the country, everyone in the world probably, has some degree of anxiety, right? Anxiety is normal. Anxiety can be helpful. Anxiety is just sort of like part of being a human being. An anxiety disorder is when it goes beyond a certain threshold and it's compromising your functioning. You can't see a person anymore because you have such severe social anxiety. That's a problem. Being nervous about seeing a person, anxiety, that's normal. Having some concerns about are you eating too much or eating too little, that's kind of normal. Beyond a certain threshold, it becomes an eating disorder where you're totally obsessed with it and it changes how you eat and it changes what you do and now it's getting in the way of your life. That's a disorder, right? Um, attention. Everyone has problems with attention during the day. Like, it comes and goes. It's stronger, it's weaker, right? Like self-esteem. And yet not everybody who has problems with attention has attentional disorder. So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, is when you go past a certain threshold 
of attentional problems. Now we're talking disorders. So to loop back, and I could say that about five or six more disorders, loop back to this narcissistic personality disorder is when there are some things going on with your self-esteem and how you're regulating your self-esteem that go past a certain threshold that gets you to the point where you're not functioning very well. You're turning off everybody around you or you're always worried about what everyone thinks and people have to be admiring you all the time. Uh, you stay very remote or you take over situations and then it, it works for the moment, but actually you alienate everyone around you. So narcissism, when you're overinflated or when you're underinflated, can be problematic. And the one people call narcissistic personality disorder is usually the one where you're overinflated. But I'll get to that because actually there's an underbelly where you're actually also underinflated and it's back and forth. So anyway, that's just a be beginning to get you in because I want to talk about uh, more things and what the disorder is. But, you know, in, in line with me trying to work with Nic Nicole and make sure that I don't just like talk right over you're gonna, her. You're going to give me some space. You're going to invite me into the conversation? Wow. Wow. I mean, amazing. Okay. So I, I, why don't I go in here? I guess like a couple of the questions that were coming up as you were speaking um, that might be interesting, you know, looking at what was going on culturally in the, the 60s, late 70s and into the 80s that really um, kind of brought in that, that, that shift in attention that, you know, where, where these different schools of thought were um, discussing narcissism and thinking about it, it was becoming um, maybe a topic of clinical interest. I know it was the age of Gordon Gecko, American Psycho, um, Wall Street, mm. all of that. So there, there was certainly like a, a larger zeitgeist going on. And I think that there's something else going on. Um, similar but different that that's happening right now with technology and selfie culture uh that might be might be something interesting to think about and then just your your thoughts about the you know the the myth of narcissus and you know is it is it is that relevant to the way we think about talk about narcissism this idea of you know falling in love with or being hypnotized by your own by your own image maybe to the point to which you're 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 numbed by it or or you don't recognize it for what it is that there's a um there's an illusion there um that and and how that might be relevant for for right now with again that selfie culture um and then last question i have mm. i get is about mm. like you know self-interest um and and ambition versus kind of this fragility of self. Um, those are things that I think would be interesting to hear more about, you know, the idea of a fragile ego that is, that needs constant validation and function versus one which is maybe, you know, at least sees itself as being grandiose um, and uses grandiosity as an instrument or vehicle for excellence. So um, some of yeah. this, I'm I'm about, I'm going to get to in in just in the next couple of minutes. So I'll just defer part of this. Great. But but the myth of narcissus, um, you know, I think what 
what the current concept of narcissism has in common with that myth. I mean, the myth is that uh, Narcissus looks into the water that's clear, still water, and sees his image in the water. And it's like, oh, my God, it's all me. Uh, that's me. And, and then he wants to relate to his image, and he loves his image. And he ha- he's going to die going after his image and drown. I mean, so that's the kind of myth that it is. The way that's tip- similar is that the um, grandiose version of narcissism and pathological narcissism has in it that it's kind of like um, the surface presentation is the world is made up of, you know what, me, me, and then me. And then there's me, right? Oh, is there you? Well, as long as you think I'm great, that yes, you're part of the world too. If you're not as an extension of you, which is what as we an extension life. of me, yeah, it's sort yes. of like you know, and so in that sense, it's like it's very much of a preoccupation with me, but it's also a reparative for some people. It's a reparative preoccupation, and I'll get into the subtypes. But one, mm-hmm. but but um, a very typical presentation would be, yeah, it's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me until someone comes along and says something critical of me that hurts me and and that I feel might be accurate and it blows my cover and it makes me feel devastated. And then I have to kind of re-erect who I am because actually, even though I present as in power and in control and superior and all of this, there's another corner of me that's feeling rather vulnerable and uh, inferior, or at least there's a history. The problem with that explanation, which is not an unusual explanation at all, if you read about or if you watch videos about narcissism, the problem with that is that there really are two subtypes of grandiose people uh, in in the narcissistic group. One actually is just what I'm talking about. They're the grandiose people who actually are also rather vulnerable. So they're sort of precarious in their position of being powerful and in charge and knowing everything or being the most beautiful or being the most talented, they actually are constantly in the back of their minds worried that the emperor has no clothes and somebody's going to reveal that. And someone comes along and says something and it's sort of like can be kind of disturbing. So there's that version of pathological grandiosity. There's another version that, and, and by the way, I'll get back to what the features are of this, but that would be the, grandiose subtype of pathological narcissism. There's a functional subtype of people that are pathologically grandiose, uh, entitled, in control, thrusting themselves in every situation, denying that they ever missed out on anything, having thinking that they're, they're overestimating their talent, overestimating their influence, overestimating their ability. I mean, there's, there's that. Um, but they actually are really good and they actually are pretty stable at that. They don't fall apart. They don't go in hospitals. They don't ask for treatment. They do not feel themselves very much to be inferior. It's mm-hmm. sort of like a structure that came together as a personality that actually is sort of holds together pretty well. And, and, you know, and so there's a lot of people that run the world in, uh, in, in tech companies, in politics, in the world, in, in governments, in business, 
that that actually have a lot of this sort of pathological grandiosity. The only thing that makes it pathological, since they're highly functional, is the way that after, over time they wear out other people, and mm-hmm. they, and they start start to really that and that sometimes becomes their downfall, is that they so believe in themselves and they so deny anything that's other than that. So there's two subtypes that are really pathological grandiose types of narcissism. And there's a third subtype, which is not those, and it's the one that's more vulnerable and hypervigilant, the person who's always saying, am I good enough? Mm. What do you think? How did I do? And, and they, they seem always anxious about whether they've been okay. But actually, when you get to know the person, you start to find that they actually have a kind of a, a hidden belief that they are great. Uh, but they're, they also... It kind of lives in the same personality as the one who's always worried they're going to be discovered or turned over or be in competition with someone else and they're going to lose or somebody's going to say the wrong thing. They're going to be hurt and they have to get it repaired and repaired and repaired and and reassure themselves that they are approved of. So there's the anxious, vulnerable, hypervigilant type of pathological grandiosity. They're the ones that are more likely to come for treatment or to ask for help. And then there's the really sort of more secure functional type. And then there's the grandiose types that actually can be brought down in a moment by the wrong comment, like an insult or something. Mm. Yeah, so those those are just a response to some of the things. I'm going to say more things that speak to um, to your questions, too. Right. Okay. Thank you so much. Very considerate. Yeah, all right. So let me say next. There's certain points I wanted to make sure I got. So I've written them down on the napkin I got at the pizza place that I got my lunch. All right. So, uh, yes. Um, All right. So what is the diagnosis? I want to go over, like, what are we talking about when we get to that, past that threshold? And we're talking about somebody with pathological uh, narcissism, uh, pathological because it's ruining their life. All right. Wait, but, quick interruption. Because you said you could, you said with one, with at least one of these expressions, the problem is the harm that it's causing to others, not necessarily to the person. So it's a relational problem, and and I guess I'm curious about that. If I think that I'm right all the time. And yeah, I'm isolating others. I'm, I'm pissing other people off. But is but if I'm feeling good about it, why? I mean, it seems obvious, maybe. But but why does it matter if other people are harmed by my behavior? Well, it becomes an interpersonal problem, which is part of why the diagnosis is there, take an extreme version of that, would be antisocial personality. Antisocial personality disorder, the person might feel like, I'm cool. I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, the world is my world anyway. I mean, if I want to do this, I can do this. If I want to do that, I can do that. So if you were going to set, then you couldn't diagnose that as a disorder because the person themselves is not disturbed by it. They're disturbed maybe because they end up in jail or they're Mm -hmm. disturbed maybe just because they don't have anyone to rely on because they burnt everybody out. 
So I, I think it's uh, and it's of the three. underpinning of interdependence here when we're, we're of really kind of like yeah, yeah. that part of what wellness is. I just don't think this is necessarily obvious on its face for people that right. aren't living in a clinical world. But there is it's not just about how you feel and live as an individual. It's actually about how you operate and function within society. Um, I just want to kind of have you validate yes. that because yes, yes, again, yes. I think it's, it seems self-evident, but it's not necessarily when we're talking about it. It's like, oh well, as long as you're functioning and doing everything you want, until you hit this certain certain threshold, that's, that's right. when it becomes a pathology. Well, you know, I see it in extremes, Nicole. If I'm seeing patients in my practice and and I'm seeing somebody who tells me they've lost three consecutive jobs, they've been kicked out of three consecutive jobs. And I say, and how do you understand that? I said, I need a fourth one. No, I mean, wow. like, what went wrong? Well, they're all assholes. They're all assholes. I mean, nobody wants, like, I have so much to offer. And so oh. you, you're, you have there somebody who doesn't personally perceive themselves as having a big yeah. problem even though they recount to you they've lost three jobs in a row, they have a new job, they're unemployed, and they can't get a job. I mean, that person is in trouble uh, inter interpersonally. Or in, in, they're, they're out of sync with the rest of the world to such okay. a degree that it has to be, it's thought of as a disorder, right? Oh, interesting. Okay. okay. So in individualistic cultures versus collective cultures, narcissism and what is narcissistic is probably expressed differently. You know, I, I don't know enough about that. I, it totally seems obvious that that's true. And when I think about where I've taught around the world, mm. if I go teach in Sweden, I've done a lot of training in Sweden. And one of the things I had to get used to in Sweden, people can understand me perfectly well. Um, right. They get the language. However, when I say, does anybody have any questions? No one ever raises their hand. And then I find out later they had a ton of questions. So what's the problem? They don't like to uh, stand out. Call attention. Yeah. They don't like to call attention to themselves by raising their hand. They think just Americans do that, you know, and Americans do that in spades. And, but they don't do that. You know, people in England do that, and they do it with a certain politeness, but an aggressive politeness. But Swedish people are like, no. Nope. Yeah. And so I had to learn when I teach there that every 20 minutes I stop teaching, let them talk to each other in Swedish, and then they ask questions, and it works perfectly well. But, but, you know, so I think in Sweden, I'd be interested. I know there's problems with narcissistic personality in Sweden, uh, definitely. Um, but I think it would be shaped differently, and it would be shaped yeah. differently in, in very collectivist cultures. I don't know. I don't want to pretend I know the answer to this. I really don't. But it's interesting. Um, okay. Zip. Go ahead. So, um, okay. So what are the features? I've tried to... There's a ton of features of, of uh, pathological narcissism. And I think if I talk about them, everyone listening will recognize some in their friends, their family members, themselves, someone they know, someone they know of. So I just want to go over them and say a little about them. And I've categorized them to make them easier to sort of hang on to. Um, the first set are the grandiose ones. Okay. So people with pathological narcissism often are identifiable because they, they think of themselves as very special. They present themselves as special. They present themselves as the best, as self-righteous, as the ones who know things, the ones who are not supposed to be questioned. Maybe you have a relative like that. 
you know, just, you know, they say something and, and no one's supposed to question it. And you can feel that. Otto Kernberg, when I was learning from Kernberg, he called people like this, his majesty, the baby. It's sort of like his majesty, the baby is sitting in the high chair of the world. And it's sort of like somebody brings him peas and he throws the peas on the floor. I don't want peas. Boyfriend like that. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. His majesty, the baby. That's great. I know. It was good. His Majesty, I mean, it's pretty demeaning. Um, I yeah. have prop, some problems with those things because actually when you actually get to know the people, they're of actually course. full people. But, but as a caricature, it's a helpful concept that it's somebody who's deciding, no, I don't want this. I do want that. I'll reject this. I'll take that. No, you don't. Re-. Anyway, there's that kind of thing. There's a sense of being arrogant and excessively entitled, and it's annoying to most people. And they can be aggressively that way. They can yeah. inflict themselves on people. You know, there's the quiet, grandiose narcissist that's sort of like in the closet, so to speak, with their narcissism. <laughs> and then there, and then, but then there's the aggressive, grandiose narcissists that are out there in your face, telling you that they're right and you're wrong, and it was stupid what you just said, and they'll use language like that. You, what are yes, you, an idiot? Yep. Right. You see, yes. you can recognize this type. I mean, I sure can. and and the aggressive ones, by the way. Um, this is where Kernberg called them um, not only uh, narcissistic or his majesty, the baby or whatever, it be, but also um, uh, he called it malignant narcissism. Mm. If you have a self structure that's sort of filled with narcissism, it's like into the world, you're projecting yourself as the powerful, all good one against the enemies and against yeah. the neutral people. If you do it, aggressively, he called it malignant narcissism, as opposed to the people who are narcissistic, but they mainly think that way, but they don't necessarily inflict themselves on other people. Um, In the news in the past few years, I mean, all the people who were trying to diagnose Donald Trump, I mean, that became one of these sort of catchphrases from a lot of people, uh, including George Conway and some of his comments and, and commentary, but even though he's not a psychologist, but was malignant narcissism. As I said in last week, uh, it's very hard to diagnose somebody when you don't know them. Um, I, I absolutely see the caricature, and, and, and Trump did fit this profile in many ways, uh, like almost a caricature of it in some ways. But, um, but I, hold, I, I would fall short of diagnosing him. Mm. Um, the person who has aggressive narcissism malignant narcissism is inflicting themselves on other people. If in addition, they have no loyalty to anybody but themselves, they don't care about anybody but themselves, they don't care about the truth, they might have an antisocial personality disorder. And Kernberg, I thought very helpfully, would line up a spectrum and say there is such a thing as narcissism, then there's such a thing as pathological narcissism, and then there's a thing as malignant narcissism. And then there's a thing of antisocial personality, which is the worst. And it's sort of like a continuity between them. And at the other end of that spectrum, by the way, would be borderline personality disorder, who shared some characteristics, but aren't as stable as the narcissistic person. Their structure is not as well preserved and maintained all the time. They're, they're going back and forth and back and forth and having a lot of painful emotions, good days, bad days, etc. So, so there's a spectrum I wanted to mention. 
So I've just mentioned the grandiose features. What's the next set of features that are always considered part of this diagnosis? And that is the um, constantly seeking admiration from others. And you would think if somebody truly believes that they are fully equipped, they wouldn't they would need approval to. from others. It's <laughs> sort of like a paradox. And they, but so they're always looking for admiration. So they can't go a day or two or three without somebody saying, you are great. And so sometimes they ask people to say those things or they elicit those things. So mm-hmm. it's very important to them. And that's where people come up with the concept narcissistic supplies is that, yeah. is that you keep needing to supply the person with the in- sense of you're an inflated person for a good reason. And we all think that you're great, etc. And so you seek out people that idealize you and you collect them around you. They become your like inner circle, your cheerleading squad like the loyalists and the ones that that are willing to put aside reality and say, yes, you are great, because it means a lot to them to feel like they're with a great person who thinks they're great. And it becomes a mutual admiration society, almost a, a sort of a narcissistic entanglement of several people. So, so just on that point, so when I've had conversations with people that are that believe they're in relationships with with narcissistic others, um, and yeah. maybe my experience as well. This idea that you know it's all an exaggerated delusion or fiction. Usually, what what I've understood is that there is a lot of talent um, or or kind of valid, uh, whether it's charisma um, or giftedness or something. So that that when there is this kind of constellation or orbit around the, you know, the narcissist it's creating this narcissistic supply. It's because there is something kind of awe-inspiring or excellent that yeah. exudes from the narcissist. So so it doesn't feel like you're entirely buying into a delusion. You're you're you think that you're being a part of something quite extraordinary until you've you're on the receiving end of maybe the aggression or that other, you know, the other side effects. No, that's right. I think that's, that is, uh, that's one of the puzzling things when you look from the outside in. Why are these people aggrandizing this other person when, when they actually don't do that in their normal lives and stuff? And I think that there often is in the pathological narcissist with this kind of feature of constantly needing admiration and being grandiose is that there is a charisma often, or there is a talent. There's a particular way of doing things that actually people say, wow, and they're willing to go along with it because this person's amazing. I mean, if you read the biography of Steve Jobs, um, I'm not saying that, I'm not diagnosing him either. I was never, I never even saw him in person. Um, Winston Churchill. What? Winston Churchill has a lot of narcissistic characteristics. Winston Churchill has a lot of characteristics. But Steve Jobs, you know, people would stick by this man, engineers who were brilliant, who would be chewed up by him. He would be angry at them and he'd be lambasting them and threatening them and everything. They'd show up to work the next day. Why? And if and people interviewed them later and said, why did you stick with this guy? They'd say, because he was so exceptional. He was actually he was an asshole and he was exceptional. And I wanted to be part of the exceptional thing. So there are things like that, um, that, that happen. Um, yeah. And so, uh, by the way, this feeling of the need for approval from other people can then also, um, uh, turn into paranoia if it's not coming 
or if people start to turn, they're very nervous. The person in that position who's still depending on narcissistic supplies of admiration and approval from others, uh, actually, if it stops coming in, they're looking out there like as if they have a kingdom and they're in their castle and it's quiet out there and nobody is supporting them anymore or they're worried about that. So they can become rather paranoid. What are people doing out there? Why is this person not praising me, right? Can you still hear me, Nicole? Because I'm there's I a, can. Yeah. There's an internet thing here where I I'm not seeing you. Live video. I see return. you. I see you. You're a little bit blurry. Can you hear oh, me? Okay. I hear you fine. Um, but okay, great. Momentarily, I can't see you. Um, okay. Let me. So we, on that note, so so with the paranoia, yeah. let's distinguish it from you know what you were what you were kind of explaining as healthy, normal, adaptive narcissism, where let's say, I don't know, I've put a lot of time and effort into a project of some kind, and I, I'm i wanting some degree maybe of validation for my efforts from people that I respect and admire to know that, you know, I've done a good job or whatever. And Perhaps I shouldn't need that. Perhaps I should be able to be completely self-validating. But because, you know, we're social species and we do look to others to say, what do you think? Whatever. If if I find myself in an echo chamber, I'm going to freak out. I don't know that that makes me a narcissist. So so this paranoia, what is that? What does that look like in practice? Yeah, well, there's a spectrum here, I think, that you're defining. And I think that um, as um, once you define any one part of this diagnosis, there'll be a spectrum of qualities. Mm. So I think that there's at one level of this, it's kind of like, gee, I haven't, gee, I'm in this project and I haven't gotten any feedback about it. What's going on? I I don't want to go beg for it, but it'd be nice for somebody to say that I'm doing a good job or that at least notice that I'm trying. And so, Mm. and then you don't get that. I wouldn't call that paranoia. I would call that sort of still in the ordinary spectrum of trying to regulate your self-esteem and and mm. having anxiety and wondering. And I think, like you say, we're social species and mm. you put out and you and you don't get reinforcement for putting out. I think people all over the place start to think, hey, what the heck's going on? Right. If it gets, though, to a level where you have a conviction and then you can go check that out, you can find right. ways to figure that out. You can ask a colleague. You could send a message. You could say, hey, how am I doing? And that's like normal attempt to find out how am I doing? Then you get to the point where the person ha- just has a conviction. So-and-so hasn't contacted me in five days. They must hate me. They know they hate me. I must have done something terribly wrong. I'm going to get fired. My whole life is over. I'm going to get fired. Now, you get to that level, and it's closer to a problem. Really straight paranoia is like there's no necessarily evidence at all that the person is going to fire you, doesn't like you, doesn't think you're doing a good job. They just haven't said anything for a while. And so it kind of like depends on how far... uh, how your reality testing is. Usually paranoia, when it's significant... There's a breakdown in reality testing, and you're sort of thinking uh, there's not much evidence for what you're saying other than what's in your own mind. So I think mm. there's a spectrum there, and even there you can recover. You can recover from that. The paranoia by right. itself is not the defining feature of uh, of uh, this disorder. So Got the it. next Thanks. set of qualities come from em- the empathy. 
usually most people who talk about the diagnosis of, of uh, narcissistic personality disorder say there's three big categories of trouble. One is the grandiosity. Uh, one is the constant need for uh, supplies or uh, admiration or whatever. And the other is some sort of a deficit in empathy or a, an incapacity to really empathize with other people. So there tends to be with these people a coldness, a remoteness, a kind of, um, I don't know, focused only on your own feelings. Somebody else says something and you just keep talking. You just keep going. It's sort of like somebody says mm-hmm. something, you say, why are you talking? It's like, because I'm a human being also. You know, and so there's a kind of like a as if you don't exist feeling like if you're working with somebody or you're dealing with someone or you have a friend who's narcissistic or they're narcissistic right now and in a bad way, um, you know, you feel like you don't exist in their universe. They're only in their own universe. And you're just an ex- like you said earlier, an extension of your universe sometimes. Um, sometimes. So there's a problem with empathy. Now, that becomes important in one of the theories about, uh, about um, this disorder because Kohat emphasized a lot that however the person looks with their grandiosity and their idealizing of themselves, their idealizing of certain other people, etc., etc., it can be kind of problematic that at the core, there's a problem of empathy. And it started somewhere yeah. early in life when they themselves didn't receive much empathy, or in today's terms also much mentalization, a term we can get back to, but it's like nobody's really understanding them, paying attention to them, empathizing with them, validating them. And so Mm. then you start to have uh, what's an empathic disruption in a caregiving relationship or a very important relationship. And now that person carries that into the world and it keeps happening. And, they, and so they, they aren't very good at empathizing and they aren't very good at getting empathy. They aren't very good at being in a two-person relationship at all. They're, they're kind of like automatons. I mean, they're distant. Uh, they're autonomous. Right. The next set of qualities, and there's just, I, please, if, bear with me. If you're finding this interesting, that's fabulous. If you're not, I'm just so sorry. Go, you should go get yourself a Diet Coke or pizza or something. All right. But um, there's a sensitivity to criticism so that even in spite of the fact that, oh, I'm grandiose, oh, I'm distant, oh, I'm remote, oh, I'm in charge of everything, oh, I've got lots of admiration, there's also this heightened sensitivity to being criticized by people. You should not receive criticism. Um, It just does you in. You feel it reveals to yourself that you feel ashamed of yourself. You feel inferior compared to the way you present yourself. Um, and you kind of have uh, a lot of envy, potentially. You look at other people and say, why am I not as good at them? But you're supposed to be so great. So there is this, and, and this is more or less true depending on which person it is. Mm. Um, and the final set of characteristics have to do with the tendency to devalue other people. So even though you're relying on people for approval, there's other people out there that you just decide are not only uh, irrelevant to your concerns and your life, but they're actually hostile or they, they could be competitors or they could do you in or they could say something critical. And so you trash those people. I mean, sometimes it's stunning. You got, I, I, had a, I had a person who came into my office once and he, the first session within the first minute, he said, are you a doctor? 
Did you go to college? Are you kidding me? Look at your office. I mean, blah, 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 blah. I mean, since you, I, I can't believe it. And I said, well, you know, it's going to be tough, isn't it? Getting help from somebody as dumb as me. And uh, just sort of used that as my first intervention uh, with that person. And, and then you managed to say regulated enough to oh say Oh, my that. God. It, it was a, a long <laughs> battle because it just wow. kept coming. This was somebody with a lot of narcissistic features yeah. and very hostile in doing it and also having a really bad life. Uh, himself, uh, so it made mm. it every. It, he was not mm-hmm. on top of the world in any. He was in the bottom of the world, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, so I wanted to say those things, and 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 that's diagnosis. Those are the things within the DSM five, the big book for categorizing disorders, mental disorders. I mean, narcissistic personality disorder. There's nine features, and they they're all within what I just covered. I tried to put them together in a way that's user-friendly for you, but they're just listed as nine features. And you have to have five of them to be diagnosed uh, as narcissistic personality disorder. Though the movement in psychiatry has more and more been to shift towards not trying to categorize people as being inside a disorder, but in just to say, what level of narcissism does this person have? Like it's a dimensional approach instead of a categorical approach. I'm not going to say more about that. There's a much more on that. that At some point, that's very interesting. Um, Looking at dimensions versus categories. Yeah. So what are you saying about it? No, I was saying that I think that that's that's a conversation worth having unto itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Something that comes up often uh, when people are talking about narcissism is this idea of, um, of gaslighting. Um, that that that's a behavior that is a narcissistic behavior, um, and and it reminds me of something you said where you know you almost stop feeling like you really exist, or you start to doubt your own sanity when you're in relationship with a narcissist. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if there's if there's validity to that because that's I think part of the the kind of pop cultural mythos. Well, I, what I think is helpful about that, Nicole, is that I think if, let's say you form a relationship with somebody, it's just a friendship, a colleague, or a dating relationship. And it seems like a pretty normal person, and a likable person, a functional person and stuff. And you start to feel, after a little while, like you don't exist, or you're an idiot, or what's the matter with me, or why am I so unsatisfactory, or... You start to get cues, and mm. um, and yet it isn't. This person is not going on like as if they would meet the criteria of pathological grandiose narcissism or anything. Yeah. And yet it might be a clue that actually in their inner world that you are a nothing, unless you're a perfect whatever you are. Like on the so good days, you're everything they want, and then you spend three hours with them and they barely notice that you exist. All they do is talk about themselves. My wife used to say when she was in dating relationships, she said it was amazing to go out with certain guys and come away realizing that she just learned everything about their life and they don't know one thing about her. Mm. And I think that that can lead to, at first you think, okay, well, that's getting to know, I'm getting to know you, but actually it's a very distorted way of getting to know each other. And, it's very one-sided. So the gaslighting can come in that context that somebody is gaslighting you 
and they make comments to you as if you're stupid or as if you're against them or as if you're insulting, or when actually you're just asking questions. And you start to realize, oh, they see me as an outsider and a potentially demeaned or dangerous outsider. And, and that, then you start to feel gaslighted by the person. Is, I don't know if I that's what you mean. I'm really curious, yeah, about the relationship between, between narcissism and shame. Um, I think in terms of being being in relationship with narcissists or maybe, you know, having narcissistic parents um, or employers or, you know, um, where where that sense of kind of chronic, chronic, um, you know, getting it wrong or, or somehow not not being able to kind of figure out what that ground is. It's an it's an interesting thing. I'm curious because it's it's come up in conversations it just in anticipation of this podcast. Uh, where where people would say, you know, that sense of like, I can't do anything right. And I thought for, you know, 10 years that I was just the shit of the earth. But then, you know, once I got out of the relationship, I realized, Eureka, it's Eureka, not me. I'm not so bad anymore. Yeah. Right? Other people think that I'm okay. That um, I'm wonderful. Yeah, that I'm really competent, that I'm actually capable. Yeah, it was very interesting. Mm, mm. I think back on a concept when you and I were first talking quite some time ago, and you talk, were talking a lot about radical okayishness. Yes. Um, and it's kind of like the antidote yes. to this feeling of being ashamed uh, and feeling that you are pervasively, there's something deeply flawed about you, which you can start to feel when you're with a narcissistic person too much. You start, And even if you think you're seeing it, it still can get under your skin and start mm-hmm. to make you feel that you are worthless. You are pointless. And Especially then, when you're talking about this more subtle, subtle expression of narcissism. And you mentioned, I think last time we spoke, this, this kind of vulnerable narcissism that is not as overt. And right. in the conversations that I had where, you know, the person didn't, did not seem like a maybe, I don't know, as, as characteristic of these more grandiose varieties or, or prototypes, mm-hmm. but maybe, you know, even, even more introverted or introspective, um, insecure even, but that the, the kind of long-term um, outcome of the, or net effect of the relationship was a sense of like, oh, I'm with this person who seems really insecure, but I feel, I feel like I'm always wrong. And um, that just right. seems very paradoxical and counterintuitive. Uh, in terms of how I think of narcissism and how maybe we we talk about it. um, And I think that that to feel that I'm always wrong or there's something very wrong with me is one understandable reaction to being with certain narcissist people who have pathological narcissism. And another reaction is I don't exist. You know, there's the person who goes on and on and on, like I do, talking to you. In this podcast, but you don't roll your eyes at me. You at least you're not rolling your eyes and like sighing. Right. No. (laughs) And those would that that would take it even further. That's right. No. And I think what I'd like us to do in our next podcast is get into the impact of narcissism on our relationships uh, with other people. Like, how do you uh, recognize when you're in a relationship with narcissistic people uh, with pathological narcissism, and how can you? protect yourself and how can you interact with that person when you're starting to feel you're going down um, because sometimes you're down before you even realize that this is a pathological situation the relationship is already terrible and you didn't even know it 
until you just feel like killing yourself. I mean, right. it's, and it's, are certain people more prone to ending up in relationship with narcissists than others? That's right. That's right. You know, one other quality about narcissism, I want to say, uh, while I'm still talking about kind of um, the picture of narcissism, is, and it's highlighted by more recent psychoanalytic models of people who look at narcissism. There was the Kernberg and Kohut models, and both of those still exist, and they're out there. And you can go online and you can see videos about them. You can read papers about them, books about them. But there's another group of therapists. They're, they're called, uh, and sort of a later version of psychoanalytic therapists called intersubjective therapists, intersubjectivity and relational therapists. And these are both therapy models that emphasize a two-person psychology. It's not just that a baby grows up and comes into the world equipped with the following characteristics, and then they run into trouble. It's that this person carries with them what it was like to be a twosome with their caregiver, with their mother, with their father, with somebody. It's sort of like, and that becomes profound. Like, what's it like? Is it is it a dominant thing? Is it one person is dominating the other one? Is it um, two people that are totally disconnected? Uh, or is it two connected people that actually can sit together or hang out together or when somebody's a, a baby or child physically be together and just be playful and reciprocal and go back and forth and have a conversation and be able to just be with each other? Because that's often missing in the relationships with pathological narcissism is that ability to just be with another person and be close and be intimate. And I don't even mean physically intimate, just be there and have conversations and say, and then be a little bit flexible and feel, realize your feelings are going to be hurt sometimes and you want to recover from that and go back and forth. That sort of goes away when you're dealing with somebody with pathological narcissism. Even Either they are very hurt by what you've done and feel very wounded or else they're very dominant and superior. But in either case, there's not that middle ground of playfulness and fun and intimacy and sharing and working out problems in a relationship. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another feature, I think, of narcissism. When you start to look at relationships that narcissists often have with other people is it's missing that. And so I, when I do psychotherapy in my practice with people who have significant narcissistic disorders, Often I find that the hard and lengthy work of therapy just includes doing a ton of that. Like mm. they come in and I say, that's a nice hat you're wearing. They say, well, why did you comment on my hat? I mean, do you, do you not like it? No, actually, I don't know why you would, would have thought. Why would I say that? If that? And then you get into it and it's not pleasant, but actually right. it's the beginning of actually having the kind of relationship you wish they had had as a child. Wow. Like to be able to talk about stuff together. That it's just missing. And so you sit there face as if you're facing off with each other and someone has to be dominant and someone has to be in charge and someone has to be the smart one and someone's the dumb one. All right. of these dichotomies are very much there when you're working with narcissism. And right. what you want to do is break that down and be more dialectical and be more That's intimate. Well, that was going to be my last point was how, you know, how your early work with Kernberg has shaped and informed your view of DBT and the work that you still do today. I mean, I'm, yeah. I think it's, it's really, well, and it seems like it's very present. 
It's very present. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, you wouldn't know that if you come to a workshop and I'm teaching about DBT because I'm talking about DBT. But in my actual work with people, it's profound part of who I am and a profound part of the work I do. I mean, what Kernberg brought to treating people with narcissism that other people didn't bring with the same level of sophistication and force was the recognition of how much aggression can destroy a relationship and how much aggression, if, it, if you, because aggression is another thing. We aren't, we're talking about narcissism, not aggression, but aggression is another thing that everybody has. So if you're not comfortable with your aggression, you think it's going to destroy or other people's, then you start to become embattled and you form a certain structure where there's a lot of aggression, but you're trying to keep it away from you. All the aggressions out there, you're, you're all good. It's all bad out there. You're a victim. And so Kernberg had this way and still has this way of articulating things so that you can see that the way the person's functioning has within it almost like well-controlled, well-hidden, but still very present aggression. And most psychotherapists are not as comfortable as Kernberg and his group at just talking about aggression as a normal thing. And to normalize and say, well, I wonder if you wish I was dead. Mm. Well, that, I don't know. I wouldn't want to think that. You might not want to think that, but actually aggression's kind of normal. You might want to think I'm dead, want to be dead. Some, well, I have thought that before. And then they're trying to say, well, let's have you own your aggression instead of projecting your aggression on other people. And Kernberg's group did that better. I mean, I was in psychoanalytic training in a couple of different places and I've studied a lot, and I've been with Linehan, who handles things very differently. But Kernberg, I had never met anybody who quite grasped how to put all that together. Fascinating. And isn't it? That's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's, it reminds me, there's a Tibetan practice, uh, Chud, where, you're, where you kind of meet your demons, and you almost become your demons. But there's this mm. space of really, you know, it's almost externalizing and being present with these disowned parts of yourself in a really like open, generous, spacious way, and it's it's that just sounds incredibly compelling and and courageous. Um, I think on both your part, you know, you and the patient to to just be willing to put out the thing that's so stigmatized most of the time and yeah. own it, not freak out about it, but to actually to like it. to own it because that that's at the core of Kernberg's model about se severe about personality disorder of, of narcissism is this uh, incapacity to uh, own and recognize your own aggression. And so your aggression gets uh, channeled in all kinds of ways other than just saying, I really want to hurt you. Right. And then owning that and then handling that responsibly. I mean, oh, scrape into a pillow, right? <laughs> right. Let me let me do some Whatever. artwork where, like, you see five-year-olds, yeah. go for a run, draw a picture, write a song, etc. Yeah. So I think that Kernberg brings that. The Kohushin people and the they bring the emphasis on the underpinnings of the problem where people are suffering from lack of empathy from other people and they've had empathic disruptions in their lives. So you want to go back and retrieve those because before all of the aggression got going or as part of it, you also just were maybe had a child in many situations where they were just profoundly misunderstood 
And then mm-hmm. that person ends up troubled, but it never, no one ever goes back and looks at uh, underneath in the infrastructure is the it, need that they're trying to meet. Very that's unskillful. Right. That's right. In very unskillful, distorted ways. Yeah. Wow. Hey, look, we're going to stop in just a minute because I'm yeah. seeing what time it is, but I didn't get to my song. Oh, my so gosh. I, I'm we got to finish with the song. Now. Yeah. I, all right. I don't know. You know, when I did one other song and I used my guitar, you couldn't hear anything with the guitar. So I actually don't know the best way to use the microphone for this. But and I wrote this this morning. So it, re, it needs a lot of work. I just thought it's I just like to do it anyway. Uh, just to break things up a little bit. We so, get the original. We get like the first mm-hmm. release. We're so lucky. So you tell me if you can hear first the, uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to just play a little bit, but then I'm going to sing, right? Yep. That's great. Can you hear that already? Yep. One minute up, one minute down, one option fly, the other drown. Don't know how this came to be. It's so rare to feel security. find that insecurity dissolves in grandiosity. Turn the page. Grandiosity I find is anesthesia for the mind. I run like wind like birds I fly, look up, you'll see me in the sky. Oops. If I just sit and wait around, a million critics will shoot me down. How can it be that I so great? Filled up and then deflate. I keep my distance. Yes, I do. From you and you and you. I ache, I do. With emptiness. Outside, I shine. Inside, a mess. Don't tell me someone's doing well. I will just hope they go to hell. Envy, shame, anger, greed. Just be myself. That's what I need. Envy, shame, 
myself That's my creed There you are To end The narcissistic Whatever It's good That was a good one <laughs> these, a lot of ref- these go into the pile of songs that need work, but uh, are fun to do anyway. Um, I loved it. That was great. Thanks. Thank that, you. What a Thank great, you. What a great, yeah. Thank what you. What a great. Got to end somehow here. So look, next time I would like us to talk about relationship, narcissistically yeah. informed relationships and how to cope with them. And I, uh, I think there's a lot to say. And I think I'll, that'll be a time of bringing in more DBT. Because DBT doesn't have a model for understanding narcissism, but I think it has a ton to offer of how to protect yourself and how to cope with such relationships. So, Bring some skills in. That sounds All right. great. Thanks, Thanks All Charlie. Right. All right. It's good to see you again. Adios, amigo. Amiga. Amigues. <laughs> <laughs>